Guerrilla Warfare by Ernesto Che Guevara, translated from the Spanish from J.P. Mori. To Camilo. Prefatory Note. The Spirit of Che Guevara by I.F. Stone. The word that first comes to mind on meeting Che Guevara was simplicity. I had been waiting to see him for some time late at night in the Colombian National Bank building in Havana. It was 1960 during my first visit to Castro's Cuba. Che was then economics minister, a heady post for wandering Latin American revolutionary. Waiting with me in the anteroom of his office on the top floor of the building were several members of the old oligarch, suave, plump, cynical, and smooth. Guevara greeted me with a warmth I found puzzling until I learned that a few years earlier, the U.S. Embassy in Mexico had accidentally touted me to him and his fellow revolutionaries. Che told me the embassy had brought up every copy it could find of my hidden history of the Korean War when it appeared in Spanish translation. The remaining copies were all the more widely read and appreciated, perhaps too highly. Che greeted me as a fellow rebel against Yankee imperialism. He was just the first man I had ever met whom I thought not just handsome, but beautiful. With his curly reddish beard, he looked like a cross between a fawn and a Sunday school print of Jesus. Mischief, zest, compassion, and a sense of mission flashed across his features during our interview. But what struck me the most of all was that he seemed in no way changed, corrupted, or intoxicated by the power which had suddenly fallen into his hands. I met his lovely dark-eyed Cuban wife for a moment before we sat down with an interpreter to a midnight supper. He spoke with that utter sobriety which sometimes masks immense apocalyptic visions. His were the beginning to be nothing less than a hemispheric showdown with the Colossus of the North and its final overthrow. He was already pictured in U.S. press as the foremost communist in the Castro entourage. Talking with him, this soon seemed another reflection of our simplistic North American political universe. There were no communist cliches in his conversation. What might have been taken for them by an American reporter was his deep distrust of the U.S. This had multiple roots. He was an Argentinian i.e. a citizen of Latin country which regards itself as our chief rival in the hemisphere. He had seen at first hand how crudely and brutally we had dealt with Latin aspirations in Guatemala after the long night of a dictatorship whose horrors we have regarded with equanimity so long as no hand was laid on the United Fruit Company. In Guatemala, as in Cuba, land reform had set the alarm bells ringing in Washington. As a doctor in self-imposed exile from the Peronist Argentina, he had begun by practicing medicine among the Indians in Bolivia, 
and knew the misery of the continent at first hand. Men become revolutionaries for diverse and often surprising and sometimes unworthy motives. Rancor, dislike of themselves, greed for power, or a hatred of stupidity, which easily becomes contempt for humanity itself. Since stupidity is its most salient characteristic, in Che, one felt a desire to heal and pity for suffering. It was out of love, like the perfect knight of a medieval romance, that he had set out to do combat with the powers of the world. This was Galahad, not Robespierre. The focus of his political concern was not Moscow, but his America, from the Mexican Sierra to the Argentine Pampas. The America we forget when we ethnocentrically use the word U.S. Of our talk on the first visit, I remember the vivid relic of a fragile hope soon dissipated. We're going to be the Tito of the Caribbean, Chase said of the Castro regime. You get along with Tito and you will gradually reconcile yourself to getting along with us. But accommodation with a rebel from the Russian Empire was quite different from accommodation with a rebel from the American Empire. American policy soon demonstrated that Castro would have to be Khrushchev's protege if he were to survive our animosity. On my second visit, some weeks before the Bay of Pigs, there was no more talk of Titoism. Now Che spoke with enthusiasm of what he had seen in his grand tour of the Soviet bloc. What impressed him most was the reconstruction of North Korea and the quality of its industrial output. Here was a tiny country resurrected from the ashes of American bombardment and invasion. Perhaps he saw this as a preview of Cuba's fate. I was not surprised when news broke out that Che had suddenly disappeared and it was said that he set out on a wider mission. He was not made for a desk. He was the permanent revolutionary. Even Cuba may have become too sedate for his taste. In the early years of the Castro regime, when heretical communist and anti-communist works could still be seen in Havana's bookstores, and there was still some faint hope of a peaceful settlement with the U.S., Latin exiles who had come to Cuba for support already began to complain that there was a palpable cooling off of revolutionary ardor as Polish Jacobins came fruitlessly for the aid to revolutionary Paris, they began to feel that the interests of the new state in the international order had begun to blur revolutionary fraternity. For when the revolution, as for the church, the world is full of snares and pitfalls, the unavoidable minimum of intercourse with things as they are, the need for trade to earn one's bread, the necessity for some diplomatic relation, the lure of friendly hands in ideologically repugnant places like Franco to Castro, and the logic of statecraft which demands weapons, technology, compromise, and duplicity. With the assumption of temporal power, the revolution, like the church, enters into a state of sin. One can easily imagine how this slow erosion of pristine virtue must have troubled Che. He was not a Cuban and could not be satisfied with building freedom from Yankee imperialism in one Latin country only.
He thought in continental terms. In a sense, he was like some early saint taking refuge in the desert. Only there could the purity of the faith be safeguarded from the unreginated revisionism of human nature. Che will live with Bolivar and Juarez among the heroes of the Latin Hemisphere. His little book on guerrilla warfare has become not only a Bible for revolutionaries, but the anti-Bible of the Green Berets of Fort Bragg, where John F. Kennedy initiated the training of special forces as janissaries of the counter-revolutionary. But few in our own country pay much attention to those sober reflections with which Che begins his practical, unrhetorical little handbook. He says that where there is some hope of peaceful change, even if the simulacrum of the democracy, the conditions are not yet ripe for successful guerrilla action. This is in perfect accord with ideology of 1776, but where, out of political, mindless, military logic or anti-communist panic, we ourselves, most recently in Greece, lay down the welcome mat for our adversaries. I have always felt there was something anachronistic in Castro's Cuba and in Che's mission to build a new and bigger Sierra Maestra in the Andes. The musical accompaniment of the Castro Revolution was Chopin and the spirit of Garibaldi hung over it. It had all the naive hopefulness of humanitarian faith of the 19th century. It had not heard of Hiroshima or the IBM's New Sinai, the computer. The hard realities of the hemisphere are very different from the revolutionary cliches of Castroism. How to create new managerial and scientific cadres to replace the old oligarchies and American aid. How do you inspire and organize for the hard work over many hungry years? An illiterate mass quite different in its conditioning of past form. Let us say, the immemorially productive people of China. For after the music of the revolution dies down, everybody still has to go to work. There are riches at hand easily seized, but how do you cash in the swag? If you expropriate U.S. oil in Venezuela, how do you sell it in a world where the cartel controls the tankers and the outlets? And if the Soviet bloc has surpluses of its own to sell, if you expropriate U.S. copper in Chile, how do you refine and sell it under U.S. blockade or attack? How many Cubas can Moscow support in a style to which they would otherwise never hope to become accustomed? How do you persuade to the revolutionary course men of goodwill applaud by the harvest of hatred in our time and the crematoriums, the liquidation of the kulaks, Hiroshima and Nagasaki? These mass murders were committed under the influence of some vision that this was the way to the earthly paradise. I recognize the Shellian purity of Che's intentions. I mourn the prospect that he may be dead. The fact that new Che's will spring up to carry on his work for without the fear of revolutionary challenges, neither the Latin oligarchy nor Washington will make peaceful changes possible. But I believe that their success will be out of all proportion to the terrible cost. And I believe this romantic handful underestimates the power, flexibility, and intelligence of the American Colossus. Yet when I see the follies of our beloved country commits in Vietnam and elsewhere, 
the billions we spend on our, quote, defense, end quote, while hate, misery, and despair build up to volcanic proportions in our back slums. I wonder whether Che's long-range estimates may not prove more realistic than mine. Lyndon Johnson may precipitate what Che Guevara alone could never accomplish. October 20th, 1967.